There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But what do you mean rape culture? Our culture labels rape as bad. I don't see a lot of people going around saying, yay, rape. No, but I mean, there are so many examples of ways that rape and sexual assault are normalized and trivialized in our society. Like... Off the top of my head, uh, songs like Blurred Lines that say a woman wants it even though she says she doesn't. Trite jokes in stand-up clubs about how funny it is to put a roofie in a woman's drink. Uh, the fact that we elected a president who bragged about grabbing women's genitals without their consent. And police who ask rape victims what they were wearing when they were raped. But what about the times there are false accusations? Rape culture might encourage a witch hunt. Right, Dee? Mm-hmm. So false accusations do happen, but really rarely. So despite the recent support for victims of sexual violence to come forward, it still sucks to do so. I mean, accusers are often stigmatized more than the people they're accusing. People try to discredit them. They say they're lying to get attention or to get money. And they have to relive their trauma by telling their story over and over and over again. It's the reason a lot of people have chosen to remain anonymous when coming forward with the recent wave of sexual harassment allegations. That was Rachel Bloom there from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, who has created a series of short films in conjunction with the American website Refinery29 and Planned Parenthood, addressing the issues of sex, consent and STDs. The clip you just heard came from one of them, debunking some of the most common misconceptions around rape culture. And the new series of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is out. And if you're not watching it, go in and watch it. It's just an absolute joy. And I hope someday to have Rachel Bloom on this podcast because she is just fantastic. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Something else we wanted to bring you before we get into the episode proper is about GAA player Rena Buckley, who this week described how she was insulted by a local club in her home county of Cork when the organisers of a children's medal ceremony told her that they didn't want her to be involved in the presentation of the medals to the under 12 boys team because she was a girl. The 18 time, 18 times she's won All-Ireland Champion medals. She was asked to present the medals last year after an underage tournament, but she was told by the organiser just before the ceremony started that she wouldn't be giving them to the boys, she would only be giving them to the girls. And she shared that story as she spoke at the Google Foundry for 20 by 20, a national movement to champion girls and women in sport. And that's something that only happened a couple of years ago, so it's not like in the mists of time. So that'll tell you how far we still have to go. More women-related news this week. Um, I was very moved by this, actually. Lady Gaga received an L Women in Hollywood Award on Monday night and she made a really powerful speech while accepting the award. She spoke really honestly about sexual assault, mental illness and the importance of women lifting each other up. She said she'd been assaulted um, at the age of 19 and that that experience changed her forever. She was wearing an oversized Marc Jacobs suit, her hair in a low bun and is a much lower key look than the extravagant ensembles she's been seen in while presenting her hit movie A Star Is Born a movie I'm dying to see. Everyone who's seen it says it's amazing. And she explained her outfit choice in this clip. In this suit, 
I felt the truth of who I am well up in my gut. And then wondering what I wanted to say tonight became very clear to me. As a sexual assault survivor, by someone in the entertainment industry, as a woman who is still not brave enough to say his name, as a woman who lives with chronic pain, as a woman who was conditioned at a very young age to listen to what men told me to do, I decided today I wanted to take the power back. Today I wear the pants. That was Lady Gaga there. I just think it's brilliant that someone in her position talks about these things and it's great to hear all these women speaking up. Later in the podcast, we're going to bring you an interview with Irish woman Jacqueline Mahan, who is the United Nations Populations Fund's representative in Tanzania. She was in Dublin yesterday for an event to launch the Global Report on Reproductive Rights and Fertility, The Power of Choice, organised by the Irish Family Planning Association. And she spoke to our co-producer Jennifer Ryan. But before we hear from Jacqueline Mahan, um, you might have seen an article this week in the Irish Times about a case in the Circuit Criminal Court where a man assaulted his wife who he was separated from um, and was sentenced to two years. He pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to two years, but he received a fully suspended sentence and walked away without any punishment at all. I wanted to get Margaret Martin in uh, from Women's Aid to talk about this case and also to talk about the times when the fact that people are in intimate relationship, it's used as a mitigating factor in terms of their punishment. It was one of those pieces that just really annoyed an awful lot of people um, and, and angered us because the judge said that uh, feelings were running high. So Margaret Martin from Women's Aid came in to talk to us about it. Margaret, I'm just going to, for listeners, uh, read out some of this news story so that people who haven't heard about it um, will will know what we're talking about. Uh, the headline is, Man who dragged wife upstairs when she refused to be paid for sex avoids jail. A man who hit his wife twice across the head after dragging her upstairs and removing her jeans by force has walked free from court after being given a suspended sentence. The 44-year-old man with an address in Dublin pleaded guilty at the Circuit Criminal Court to assault. And in sentencing him to two years fully suspended, Judge Patricia Ryan said the incident took place shortly after a marriage breakup when feelings were running high. The couple's marriage had ended some months prior to the attack, but they continued to live together. The woman had, I think it's very important to say, a protection order against her husband in the weeks leading up to the assault. And the court heard that. Um, Just some description of the actual assault itself. Uh, On the day of the assault, the defendant offered to pay the woman for sex and became upset when she declined. He then grabbed her from behind in the garden, pulled her into the house and dragged her upstairs. Um, he took her into the bedroom that they used to share and he hit her twice across the head before removing her jeans by force. The woman was screaming and crying, repeatedly asking him to stop. She grabbed a plastic bottle, hit him on the head. She was trying to physically fight him off. And the defendant then took off the woman's clothes, got on top of her, leaving her struggling to breathe. Uh, he stopped, apparently, when he realised how scared she was and apologised to her. 
the woman's victim impact statement said she suffered depression and cried every day for months after the attack. Um, apparently, uh, he was remorseful and wanted her barrister to apologise to her on, on, on his behalf. And then Judge Patricia Ryan said that this guy was a good father who had a meaningful relationship with the couple's daughter and no previous convictions. Um, she gave him credit for his guilty plea, for his cooperation with Gardaí, for his excellent employment record and for his expressions of remorse. She said it was a serious incident that was violent in nature and had a physical and psychological effect on his victim. But the final thing that I just can't get over is that she said she would not ask him to engage with probation services because such appointments could jeopardise his employment. And she said, and this thing I can't understand because there's a protection order she said, I'm not asking him to stay away from her as they have a child who's yeah. still in school. Yeah. OK, so I saw this, Margaret, and I'm a bit of an emotional beast, as you might know. And so I'm hoping you might bring a bit more rationality to it. But I just find that story so, so shocking but it's in so, so many ways. Yeah, but it's, ve- it's very threatening for all of us as women, you know, because really, um, essentially what's happening here is that there's a woman who's in a relationship where you should be able to trust somebody. You're in your own home. She's out in the back garden. He drags her in. So it's a very horrific experience for her. And she has gone down, you know, obviously there was things happening before this because she she went down and she got a protection order. Um, that means that there was some level of abuse that the system Because they are not straightforward to get. You can't just get one. You have well, to get a protection show. order is the first order that yeah. you get before you get a hearing for either a safety order or, or a barring order. Yeah. So that, that process had just begun and we don't know how far that was. But like you say, you wouldn't be going for that process unless there had been some serious You have serious to have some sort of grounds and you yeah. wouldn't get it unless there's some sort of grounds. Um, and then this horrific, I mean, if you if this story, if you take out the fact that it, there's an intimate relationship there and this man comes along in the garden, drags you into the house, strips you of your clothes um, sits more or less is holding you to you're having difficulty breathing, you're fighting him off. So, it's Margaret, say I'm in my house and I'm in my garden and a random man breaks yeah. into my house, comes out to the garden, does that to me or does that to you. Do you think that the judge would be talking about feelings running high in any way? Like if, even if something terrible not. had happened to that man, do you think yeah, it would be a relevant absolutely factor? Absolutely not. And I, I think this, I think the, you know, the, the, the mitigating factors that are, are um, cited in that case, it, it, it really runs counter to an understanding of the dynamics of domestic violence and the huge betrayal of trust. And then you think, you know, okay, what's happened for this woman? She's she's gone ahead. She's she's gone ahead with the charges. She's gone through the criminal courts. There's very the sanction for him is extremely light. And in addition to that, she's she's had this horrific experience. She's terrified him of him but she's has no further protection there's going to be contact she's going to have to provide that contact so is the protection order gone the well the i'm not sure what will happen in relation to that but in the comments from from the judge the when she was saying um, i can't remember exactly what the wording was that she wasn't going to make him stay away because they had a child now the problem with that is we do we have nothing in terms of risk assessment for the woman in that situation for risk assessment for the child was the child in the house did the child know what's the impact on on their daughter and then we have no safe system so there's no safe handover for her you have to think about what is her experience this is an absolute nightmare situation but it seems margaret that her experience and the effects of that on her i mean i know the judge did mention that in fairness to patricia ryan she did say this was a serious, serious. thing it was it was yep. very violent and the psychological effects were real. But it seems as though those things run 
uh, are less important than his ability to get a job. I can't get my head around that. And the other thing I can't get my head around is why, because it's an intimate relationship, does that seem to make uh, it a lesser crime? When actually, like you said, the betrayal of trust, surely it's a much more serious crime when you're in an intimate relationship with somebody and they do something like that to you. Surely it means you should get more, not less. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the things that's good about the new domestic violence bill that hasn't been commenced yet. So what will happen once that is the case, that there will be a recognition that an intimate relationship is not a mitigating factor, that it's an aggravating factor. And, you know, I think... And when does that come in? Because... I have no idea. I have no idea. Exactly. Just say that again. So instead of it being a mitigating factor, as it was in this case, it should be an an aggravating aggravating factor, factor. which means it should be something that would mean the punishment should be greater. Exactly, because it's such a betrayal of trust. Talk to me about why up to now and maybe we're talking historically because we really I suppose we're going back to how the judicial system was set up in the first place and maybe was was set up when being married to someone you were kind of owned by someone exactly you were were property so this idea that it's a mitigating factor that comes in there somewhere doesn't it It, it, I think the the historic context was that, that women were chattels you know, and if you think of that thing, that's saying a rule of a thumb was the width of a stick that was acceptable for you to beat your wife with. So, you know, there there is this thing of entitlement that men are entitled to sexuality. You can, you know, to, to fulfilling their sexual needs whenever they want, if they're particularly if they're in a relationship, if they're married or not. And we hear that all of the time. So the frustration then and his feelings are running high. Now, why are his feelings running high? It's, a, you know, they had separated they were they were looking they were still residing together but we're in a high housing crisis so there is this this lack of challenge to men feeling this entitlement what we're not doing is there's nothing that dissuades him from doing this again, apart from the fact that he has this suspended sentence, which is not good. I'm not undermining that. But he hasn't. Probation services can be really good services in terms of um, helping helping somebody deal with. Exactly. And also helping the woman feel that something is being done. Because really, but at least she's aware that he's going to meetings with this person, that he has yes. to keep accounting for his whereabouts, yeah, exactly. all that kind of thing. Exactly. And I mean, the essence of justice is that it should be dissuasive. So the message that should, that's sent out to society is that you should be dissuaded from doing this sort of crime. I mean, this is not unusual. Unfortunately, what we have seen over the years is a pattern where it seems that if you're in an intimate relationship, that the charges are lesser. So what we've done, um, we got a grant last year to do it and we're about halfway through a project which is a sentencing watch. I'm so glad when I heard you were doing that. Yeah, we've wanted to do it for years and years and years because we've done the femicide watch for 22 years. We've gathered the information and it's only when you have that evidence there and when an NGO like ourselves actually goes and gets it um, that you you can see some sort of change. So that, that what we have done is we are collecting data from the newspapers in terms of all the, you know, this particular case will be one of them, but all of the cases that are recorded in the papers, we're about halfway through all of that. We're analysing that. What were the charges? What's the sentence? What was suspended, et cetera, et cetera. What were the mitigating factors? What were the mitigating factors, you know, in as much as we can. And then at the moment, we've just finished a process where we've been consulting with women in a variety of different ways. Um, We've had focus groups with them. We've had one-to-one interviews with them or we've had, you know, depending on what they're comfortable with, 
with themselves about what their experience was in situations where there was criminal charges. They may have decided not to go down the criminal route. So we're really interested in learning from them what were the barriers that in relation to that. For example, a lot of women would say things like, I don't want to criminalise him. He's the father of my child. I want to be able to have the maintenance. So they have to weigh up all of these consequences for other women then who've gone down the criminal route. And like this woman who's gone down this criminal route, what was the sanction? What was the message that was sent out? What was the protection that she gets as a result of that? So we want to highlight that and we should have that report probably around this time well, next year. Well, I hope you'll come in and talk to us about it. I mean, I'm trying to think, you know, if George Patricia Ryan was here, you know, that I mean, this is one report in a newspaper. Clearly, it went on for longer than any report yes. could kind of relay. So we're hearing snippets of it. We're hearing quotes from her. But do you think, you know, was she in a position where that was what, that was the only route open to her, that that was the inevitable thing she had to do? Or, you know, am I being too kind of hard on her in, in that way? Um, I, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough to really comment hugely on that. But I, I do think that there is a resistance from the judiciary to understanding the dynamics of domestic violence, that it is a different crime. That is not the same in other jurisdictions. So that understanding the impact of when it is somebody that you've tr- you've trusted, who's the father of your child, you're going to have ongoing contact and taking account of those factors, both in the judgment, but also in the follow up of what happens afterwards. Like, for example, one of the things that we are always talking about is assessing the risk, which I've mentioned already for that woman whenever she has to provide access to th- and also for the child and, and getting much better at addressing those issues. We need to do that. But also we need to be doing an awful lot more in schools about this sense of entitlement that boys have. And, you know, where does that come from? What's feeding into that? And how do we challenge that? The Department of Education has been very, very resistant to having a very comprehensive um, programmes running for all children at all levels in an age appropriate way. So There are lots of children like this child who has seen things that that are deeply distressing or who knows. And a lot of the time, the children know far more than people realise that they do. So if they can't verbalise that, if they haven't got a space to talk about that, that is something they're going to be carrying for a very long time. And maybe they will talk about it at some point in their lives. So you have to actually have a good supportive programme that operates at a whole different levels, one in the individual protection, but then also in the preventative work. And in terms of the preventative work, one of the things we're doing at the moment is we've been running a campaign called Two Into You to to, um, so the big billboard yeah, on Liberty brilliant. Hall. It Can't looks miss so it. good. My kids were going, what's yeah, that? And I was like, oh, I'll tell yeah, you about that. It's, it is really strong. <laughs> it's great. And we get very positive response from young women, you know, who are in relationships and they're trying to define because domestic violence is not a simple thing. Like if I walk out to, today and somebody robs my bag, it's gone. It's, it's something very clear. It's, it's a kind of a constellation of a lot of things. And it's almost like a flu, you know, that you have pains and aches and you have a bit of a, is, what is this? What's happening? You're trying to make sense of what's going on. So we have a health relationship quiz on our website that helps you actually, that thing about control. The tactics of abusers are very similar. Yeah, and coercive so, control is something that's come in now with that bill as well. That will come in and yeah. we need to see how that's going to develop. And that's a really good development. But it's it's going to hopefully there needs to be an education program then in relation to that. So that those things that are not physical violence, but that our abuse will become much clearer I mean, as well. In terms of education, is it, I mean, maybe they get this, maybe I'm being a bit um, naive about it, but 
would judges and people in the legal system be getting educated and trained in these things? You know, when when that's not a, a mitigating factor anymore, it's aggravating. And when coercive control comes in, you know, so it shows that domestic abuse is not just physical, that there are all sorts of different ways and that's a crime as well. Will they get trained into how to process well, these cases I think or does was, it just... Yeah, what was interesting for me is I spoke at the Legal Aid Board there. They had their annual conference and there was a panel of judges there. There was a panel of uh, legal pr- practitioners, NGOs like ourselves etc. And one of the things that was said at that by the judiciary was that there's a lot of legislation coming in on a no-cost basis so that the there is a lot of work that's been done at this legislative level but in a sense it's not dropping down and being resourced to actually make it as effective as it should be. And one of the legal professionals um, I think it was Keith Walsh so I hope I've got his name right said it's almost like you have this car that looks really good on the outside but it has yes. the engine of a Honda 50. And that's a really really good analogy yeah, and that's what that you'd be excellent. worried about because like how can you expect yes. that these things will all suddenly become you know in, in cases that they'll actually be applied and they'll be yeah. processed in the right way if you're not putting in the resources on the other side. Yeah, and I think that that training for everybody, you know, right through from the guards so that, um, you know, that, that there's yeah. a really good understanding of the subtleties of it and the nuances and the dangers as well that, you know, when somebody goes and takes out an order, that's an immediate escalation of risk. So the risk in that relation escalated for that woman when she went for the protection order. We're aware of that. So a lot of people wouldn't necessarily even be connecting into domestic violence yeah. services. Then the, the housing crisis has trap, have trapped women in situations that are very similar to that. They're in the same house, that you're, you know, you're living separately and apart, that you have to wait for four years to maybe get a divorce. There's all of these things that are, are, are just additional layers and layers and layers of barriers to getting out of abusive relationships and making it so difficult and leaving women at risk. Just finally, when is that bill going to be... I would hope that it would be commenced. I don't think it's going to be commenced by the end of the year. But and there is, in fairness, there is there is groundwork that needs to be done in terms of changing court forms. And there's a lot of stuff like that. But I would hope that it is properly resourced and that it is commenced as soon as possible and that we definitely see a difference. And that, so in a, say in a case like this, if it comes up, say, in March next year or in the summer of next year, that they will no longer be able to say, oh, they were, you know, they'd just broken up or they were in this intimate relationship and that means that therefore that should be a lesser lesser sentence. That will be something that if a judge says that, it will be totally out of order to say. Is that right? I don't think, I think the thing with the judiciary is they're seen as having to be independent Mm. and I think what you're talking about to some extent is kind of a cultural change which is very slow. So the legislation I think will be will be one of the things then the evidence base I mean this this will be coercive control will be a criminal offence usually that means that you 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 know in terms of us supporting women you have to gather a lot of evidence there is a lead in time then before you actually the, the DPP's Cases, so I think to, it, it's going to take a couple of years before we see this. But I think it can be really significant. But the big message is, you know, perpetrators: Am I going to get away with this if I lose the head? You know, is it acceptable if some if a woman loses the head? You know, is that is there a different standard? But for men to kind of oh, the feelings were really really high. We expect a level of violence for men. Really, we need to be challenging that to protect everybody better. Okay, well, Margaret Martin, Director of Women's Aid, thank you very much for coming in to talk to me about it. I I just keep thinking of that woman and 
Just one thing that's occurred to me, is, is it open to appeal? Perhaps is this something that will be looked at again or is that the end of it? It would depend on her whether she wants to go further with it and what sort of support she has. And I think a lot of women are very exhausted by it. And um, for a lot of women in the throes of that, sometimes um, looking at it for a little bit from the outside, um, you might have wanted, you know, to have seen him more like with this case, the fact that it's two years suspended. Even the fact that he's that it's recognised that he's guilty might mean a huge amount to that particular woman. And that might be enough for her at this particular point in time. And we would hear that from him as well. It is so hard to get to that particular point and getting official recognition that this was wrong. The sanction, I think, is in my view, is light, but in her view, that might not have been the case. You know, so so those options are there. OK, Margaret, thank you very much for coming in. You're very welcome. Now, a report by the UNFPA, which was launched in Dublin yesterday, has said that 11% of women in Ireland are still facing an unmet need for contraception. The Power of Choice report also stated that not one country in the world can claim that all of its citizens enjoy reproductive rights at all times. Jacqueline Mahan from the UNFPA was in Dublin to launch the report and she spoke to Jennifer Ryan about some of its findings and also about the situation for women and girls in the country she's stationed in, Tanzania. Jennifer began by asking her about her own background and how she came to join the UNFPA. UNFPA is the United Nations Population Fund. Uh, the sexual, uh, sexual and Reproductive Health Agency and addresses ensuring that every pregnancy is wanted, every childbirth is safe and every young person's potential is fulfilled. And we have a new strategic plan uh, that got launched in January 2018 um, and focuses on critical priority areas that we have committed as UNFPA. Zero unmet need for family planning, Uh, zero maternal deaths and zero gender-based violence, including harmful practices such as child marriage and female genital mutilation. So you're Irish, obviously, but you're based in Tanzania. Mm. Can you tell me how you got into this line of work? What's your background and how did you end up uh, in Tanzania? I have been, since I was very young, I have been very interested in development and um, I studied. I'm an economist by profession and I had the opportunity uh, when I had just graduated um, to go as a junior civil servant um, the Overseas Development Institute to a fellowship program for very young graduates um, who don't have the experience per se in uh, working in, in developing countries and low-income countries but really want to and so are challenged because when they apply for jobs they're asked for experience so ODI provides that um, opportunity so I actually went to Zanzibar in Tanzania and I worked in the Ministry of Health as a junior economist and from there on I have worked in a variety of countries in East and Southern Africa and also in South Asia. I worked in Bangladesh um, and then I um, I worked for UNFPA. I started working for UNFPA around 2007 and started in their headquarters um, as a policy advisor on global health and health systems And then I had the opportunity to return to Tanzania, a country which I love very much. And so I seized that opportunity and I have been in office in Tanzania for over a year now. 
and um, it's a great experience. I have a lovely team and um, I'm very grateful to be able to work there in support of making a difference, particularly in the lives of women and girls. And you've been there for a year now, is that it? What are the kind of challenges that you face in that country with regards to uh, reproductive rights and health for women and girls? In terms of sexual reproductive health, uh, the government has very much committed uh, to reducing maternal mortality and mor morbidity and ensuring access to reproductive health services. Tanzania has a high maternal mortality uh, 556 per 100,000 live births, which translates roughly into 11,000 women dying per annum, 30 women per day. So it's a, a and that's from the, demo, the recent demographic health survey from 2015 and 16. Um, also in terms of access to family planning, contraceptive prevalence rate is 32%, which means that for some women, um, they have challenges in accessing uh, family planning. There is an unmet need for 22%, but these are national averages, so it varies. Um, so you have, for example, in terms of contraceptive prevalence rates, you have you know, highs over 50% and you have lows over 7%. You also have, in terms of the quality of services, ensuring that when women have complications and need to deliver safely, that they're able to access facilities, particularly in terms of emergency obstetric and newborn care. And the government has been moving very fast in ensuring that facilities are much closer to the communities that they serve. And we as UNFPA have been supporting the government more generally um, in ensuring quality reproductive health services. We're very much concentrated in areas that have high maternal mortality and morbidity, um, high teenage pregnancy, high gender-based violence, and also in the context of harmful practices such as child marriage and teenage pregnancy. Um, and we've just actually, we had a very successful uh, national dialogue last week on ending female genital mutilation, child marriage, um, and teenage pregnancy in regions that have a very high burden. And it was very much led by government um, and very much supporting to address these issues. So in terms of the context, there is a lot of um, focus and a lot of prioritisation around these areas. And uh, I know you don't want to get into the politics of things, but the, there has been some choice comments, I suppose, by the president of that country in recent times about the use of contraception and also uh, about pregnant girls not being allowed to return to school after they've had their children. How do you kind of overcome those challenges or what kind of role does the UNFPA try to play there? I mean, I, I think we're very much um, supporting more generally the national policies and strategies that are in place and as I said we're working in areas that have you know have have significant issues around teenage pregnancy child marriage issues around an unmet need for family planning so we are working closely with government to address these issues and to ensure that we are moving forward um, and ensuring that in terms of our advocacy and, and messaging recognizing that Tanzania is a very diverse country and so that not one message fits in all contexts. So we have to ensure that in terms of our advocacy messaging, that we recognize the norms and values, whether in the context of family planning, we're talking about issues around child survival, maternal survival, and, you know, uh, safe uh, child spacing, things like that. So being very, you know, specific about 
that there are different needs and, and different messaging that we need to address. And ensuring, for example, as I said, that there are quality reproductive health services available and closer to the community and working with government to ensure that those services are in place. The government has a national health policy and it has a commitment to, to family planning and those policies are in place. Um, and you know, we work, as I said, very closely with government and other partners in addressing these areas. Does it make it a little more difficult to, to achieve your goals, though, when that sort of messaging is coming from on high? Um, I think in terms of, I think to recognise, I think that there are, you know, it's very much in line with the report that we're going to launch today in terms of the power of choice, uh, reproductive rights, um, in you know in a, in the context of a demographic transition, recognizing that 50 years ago, um, at the human rights conference in Tehran, that family planning was recognized as a human right, which means that it's not population control. It means that individuals, men and women, have the right to choose whether, when, and if they desire to have children. So there's no issue of population control in relation to um, family planning. It's ensuring that. One has the, you know, the, you know, the information, the services available to make an informed choice and respecting that choice. Um, so I think in terms of that messaging, ensuring that it is a right and also ensuring that it's a choice and um, that, again, underlining that it is not population control. And you mentioned there that so you're in Dublin here to launch the Power of Choice report and it looks at reproductive rights and fertility, linking the two to progress. It says the extent to which people have choice has a direct impact on fertility. Can you just explain what that means? Um, I think the, the report, rec- you know, the report, it's actually a very comprehensive report. Um, and it actually, you know, never in the history of the world has there been such diversity in terms of fertility levels. You have what could be described as low fertility, which is two children on a total fertility rate of two children per woman or less. You have mid-range fertility, which is above 2%, but less than 4%. And then you have high fertility, which is above 4%. So you have different diver- you know, different needs within each of those groups and beyond. And you have, for example, in the low fertility rates, you have in terms of the choices and the services that are available to ensure that, as again, that men and women are able to choose how many children, if they want to have children, and how many children they can have, and that it's not just about having access to contraceptives, which is very important, but it's also the economic, uh, the social and the institutional determinants, for example, access to uh, childcare services, issues around uh, friendly family policies such as parental leave. All of those are very important in terms of ensuring that people have the right and are in a position to choose. And in terms of mid-range fertility, which as I said would be above two but less than four, then you have issues around ensuring that you know, marginalised populations, more vulnerable populations are being reached uh, with reproductive health services, that young people have access to comprehensive sexuality education and life skills, their understanding about their bodies. And then in higher fertility countries, that there is 
comprehensive reproductive health services available, that were addressing issues of unmet need, that were actually prioritizing reproductive health services, were addressing issues of gender equality and women's empowerment, for example. Do you know where does Ireland fall on this chart? Ireland is around 2.0 in terms of the total fertility rate. So the total fertility rate, again, which I should have clarified, is the average number of children um, who survive per woman during her reproductive years, 15 to 49. So Ireland is around 2.0, which is slightly below replacement level. Replacement level is 2.1. That's when your population remains constant. It doesn't drop, it doesn't go up. So that's where Ireland is. And of course, in this country, and we recently voted to remove a huge impediment to reproductive rights a few months ago with the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. Can you take me through maybe a couple of examples of some of the other sort of similar obstacles to uh, reproductive rights in other countries that are be highlighted by this report. As I'm the representative in Tanzania, let me take that example. And I've already highlighted some of those issues. I mean, I think in terms of being able to ensure, particularly in terms of rural women, in terms of more vulnerable and marginalised women and girls, that they can access services, that's critically important. And that when they access those services, that the services are available and that they have those quality um, and that they're treated with respect and that they have the necessary information to make choices Um, and as again I said you know reproductive rights is family planning contraceptives very important but it's also these broader issues and they intertwine between issues around gender equality and women's empowerment and women being able to exercise their rights so these are some critical you know, challenges that we need to ensure. Uh, We need to ensure that, for example, uh, that women have access to, that they have, you know, opportunities um, in terms of continuing at school um, and education, because we know that education contributes more generally to women in terms of informing their their choices um, of the in terms of their the lives that they take forward and the number of children that they have. And you mentioned this report is very comprehensive and it covers well, it's the whole world, basically. How long does it take to put something together like this? How much time is spent collecting that kind of data? And how long before the moment that it, it, that started that we finally see this on the table in front of us? Well, I would probably refer you to our colleagues at headquarters because it's driven by uh, a specific team and headquarters that work on this. But from past experience when I was there, it's quite a long, I mean, it's a very um, detailed process that takes place probably early at the beginning of the year. And then they start outlining what what the what the theme of the um, of the of the report will be, and then start working towards that. So it would start maybe early, and it would have started maybe early in 2018, and then they would have started gathering all the various data, looking at experts to address some of the specific critical elements that are highlighted there. So a lot of work does go into it, and um, it's planned uh, very very carefully to ensure that it has the latest information available. And my final question would be, what would be the measure of success for this, for the power of choice? I think in terms of the, there are a number of policy recommendations that are made. And I think it would be very important in terms of, you know, leaders in countries that recognising those policies. And also from an individual level as well, to be able to articulate and communicate that message that in terms of choice, in terms of the right to choose, in terms of being able to exercise your uh, reproductive rights is so critically important and is an, int- an integral part um, of your uh, of your being as an individual. 
That was Jacqueline Mahan there, who's the United Nations Population Funds representative in Tanzania. Thanks very much to her and to Margaret Martin, the director of Women's Aid. That's all we have time for today. The podcast was produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. We'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 